This episode of Fearless Rebel Radio is brought to you by You On Fire. You On Fire is the amazing 12-week online group coaching program that I run where we build up your worth from the ground up so that it's no longer hinging on the way that you look. It's got personalized coaching from me and incredible community support plus lifetime access. Get details on what's included in this program and sign up to be notified when doors open for the next cycle by going to summerinandin.com forward slash you on fire. I would love to have you in that program and in that group. This is Fearless Rebel Radio, a podcast about body positivity, self-worth, anti-dieting, and feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 139, and this is another installment of Classic Rebel Radio, where we revisit an episode from the past while I'm on maternity leave. Today, we are revisiting the interview I did with Reagan Chastain, author, speaker, activist, and internationally recognized thought leader on self-esteem, body image, and health at every size. We talk about size stigma, health at every size, why everybody deserves respect, her experiences training for an Ironman, and more. This episode originally aired February 1st, 2016. And in this episode, I will also be answering a listener question on what to do if you feel like you cannot trust your body. You can find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode at summerinandin.com forward slash 139. In case you haven't heard, I'm on maternity leave until spring 2019. So the episodes you are hearing here originally aired in the first two seasons of the podcast. They are some of your favorites, and I hope you enjoy re-listening to them or hearing them for the first time. Before we begin, I want to give a shout out to Patty, who left this amazing review. I love this podcast. I think this was another great solo episode. Thank you, Summer, for providing up-to-date stats on disordered eating, the diet industry, and body image. Your detail and discussion of what components make up our body image, as well as what it means to be body positive, were also well done. Thanks for another great episode, and I look forward to sharing with my clients. I'm pretty sure Patty's referring to episode 79, the episode I did on body image and body positivity 101. So thank you for that, Patty. And uh, yeah, that's one of my favorite episodes too. So definitely check it out. And if you haven't already done so, please leave a review for the show. It would really, really help the show and me and others to find the information that you're learning here. So go to iTunes, search for Fearless Rebel Radio, click ratings and reviews, and then click to leave a review or give it a rating. And if you haven't subscribed to the episode, not the episode, the show via iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. And don't forget to grab the free 10-day body confidence makeover at summerinandin.com forward slash freebies with 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. I'm going to answer a listener question before we hop into this episode. This comes from Chelsea. I have a wee one. And even though I don't know you, I'm sure you're going to be an amazing mama. (laughs) Thank you, Chelsea. (laughs) I really hope it's true. So my question is in regards to trusting my body. Although I've recently woken up to the sham diet culture is, I've been heavily influenced by it my entire life. Although intellectually I can get on board with body positivity and fat acceptance, I'm having trouble trusting my body at a base level. I weight cycled several times and then when I met my husband, I gained a bunch of weight in the first two years of our relationship. Here's where things get weird. 
when I got pregnant and had a baby, I ended up losing weight during the pregnancy and then gaining back a bunch of weight in the first year of my baby's life. All my blood work has always been normal and there has never been a medical reason for me to lose weight while pregnant and gain weight while nursing. So now I'm the biggest I've ever been and nervous about the same thing happening during my next pregnancy and that I will cycle again. I'm worried I've permanently damaged my metabolism from the weight cycling, both intentionally and unintentionally, and I'm having trouble trusting my body when it seems to do things quote unquote wrong. For example, losing weight while pregnant and gaining weight while nursing. I would love your insight on the situation. Thank you so much for submitting this question, Chelsea. And yeah, I mean, I think in this situation, you know, we have been really been conditioned to think of our body doing certain things in certain situations. And what I'm hearing is that body trust is tightly wound with the conditioned ways we've been taught to think about our weight during pregnancy and breastfeeding. Now, I will give you, I totally understand. I think losing weight when you're pregnant is very strange. I am not a doctor. I am not, I do not have a background in, in medical stuff at all. So I cannot explain why that happened. I would actually probably look for some additional opinions on that and definitely talk to your care provider before you get pregnant or when you get pregnant the next time around, because I'm not sure why that happened. And it does, it does seem a little counter and a little bit strange because you are growing a human inside of you that is extra weight. But in terms of breastfeeding, it is a myth that we lose weight while breastfeeding. That is a myth. Many people don't. And in fact, many people gain weight. And that is because of the hormones that are secreted, which slow our metabolism. And the fact that we need more body fat to breastfeed. So I think that coming back to your question about being able to trust your body, if our level of trust is connected to whether our body is doing things that we think it should or shouldn't do on from a weight perspective, then we're never really going to cultivate trust because it's still so connected to our weight. So it sounds like you went through some kind of weight restoration during breastfeeding to maybe compensate for the weight that you lost during pregnancy. But again, I don't know your situation well. I'm not a doctor, but that's just kind of my inclination based on what you wrote. So while you may have experienced things counter to how we're told we should experience them, it doesn't mean that it's wrong or that there is something wrong. Now, if you really feel like something is wrong in your in your gut, you're like, this doesn't see this doesn't feel right, then I definitely suggest seeing a doctor, seeing someone who can help you with that. So I'm not saying that you should ignore our body's signals or ignore any kind of weight changes that seem a little bit strange, but our body doesn't always do what we think it should do. So I always tell this story to clients, like the last diet that I ever did was a, was a cleanse where it was like a liquid cleanse for a week and I gained weight. <laughs> so like, I have no idea how that happened and it's completely counter what you think would happen. So sometimes our body does stuff that it, you know, we, we don't think it should do because we've been told that, okay, if we eat less, we should lose weight. Or if we eat more, we should gain weight. And that's not exactly how bodies work. It's just, it's not that simple. And we can't attach trust 
to what our weight is doing or not doing. So to really trust our body, we have to detach it from our weight, meaning we have to stop trying to control things like our weight that are not really in our control and instead tune into the cues that our body is giving us. Like trust is really built from starting to connect with what our body needs and how our body feels. So just really checking in before you eat, what do you feel like eating after you eat? How did that feel? What would feel good for me? And just on a daily basis, checking in, am I feeling okay? How, you know, am I feeling well fed? Am I feeling rested? Am I feeling nourished? And all of those things are going to help you to listen to what your body is trying to tell you, which I know sounds really ambiguous and woo woo, but really our body is, is constantly sending us signals about what it needs whether that is rest, whether that's nourishment, whether that's movement, whether that's therapy, you know, it's always kind of sending us signals that something might be off and that we need a little bit more or less of something in order to feel better. And that's how we build trust. So it's not about looking at what our weight is doing. It's about looking at what our body is telling us and trying to connect with that. And it's not turned on with a switch. If you've been disconnected from your body your whole life, then it's going to take a long time to reconnect that. And it's like a new relationship. You're building a relationship with something that you haven't had a relationship with before. So it's built up meal by meal, day by day, every time that you listen to your body, that you give it what it needs, that is building up further trust within yourself. And it's going to take time. And if you're ever concerned, or you feel like this is not working for me, I highly recommend always working with a health at every size dietitian, because I think that they can just reassure you as it relates to what you're doing with food. And and also maybe give you some insight if you are feeling concerned from a health perspective, or uh, with what your body is doing. So I hope that that clears up your question. And uh, just always, I think, you know, don't, if a doctor is saying everything's fine, and you don't feel like something's fine, seek alternative opinions. I have had to go to, you know, multiple different doctors to help me with hormone problems that I've had. And if I wasn't satisfied with an answer, I would have to keep looking and try to find somebody else. And it's frustrating. And, and you wish that you could just get an answer right away. But if you feel like something is off, then definitely seek support for that. So I just wanted to add that in there because I think that sometimes, you know, doctors might say oh, everything's fine, but there's maybe some other stuff that they could check that if you feel in your heart that something is not fine, then they can look further. So that's just the, uh, I wanted to conclude with that because I think it's an important point to mention that doesn't really have to do with the question, but but also kind of does. So uh, without further ado, let's revisit this interview that I did with Reagan, who I absolutely adore. And I hope you enjoy it. Hey, everyone. Today, I am talking to Reagan Chastain, the woman behind Dances with Fat. Reagan Chastain is an internationally recognized thought leader in the fields of self-esteem, body image, health at every size, and corporate wellness. She is a sought-after speaker on the college, corporate, and conference circuits who has set the stage on fire everywhere from Google headquarters to Caltech 
to the Models of Pride conference. She is the author of the blog danceswithfat.org, the book Fat the Owner's Manual, a columnist for Ms. Fit magazine, serves on the editorial board for Fat Studies, an interdisciplinary journal of body weight and society, and frequently gives expert commentary on television and in print. Reagan is a featured interviewee in the documentaries America the Beautiful 2, The Thin Commandments, and A Stage for Size. She lives in Los Angeles with her partner and their adorable dogs, and in her free time, she is training for her first Ironman triathlon. Welcome to the show, Reagan. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Summer. I am so excited to have you here. I'm not going to hide it. Hey, me too. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this for, um, I think, you know, since you responded and we set a date probably a couple weeks ago, uh, I've just been so pumped about it. And so I'm, I'm really, really honored to have you here. I just, you know, I, I admire your work so much and I know my audience loves you as well. So I'm just so grateful. And um, yes, so thank you. <laughs> oh, no, my pleasure. I'm super honored to be on anything called Fearless Rebel has got to be awesome. So I <laughs> yes. am super pumped. Thank yes. you so much for having me. Yes. And, you know, pug owners. So yeah, pug owners like, unite. People who like dogs with smushed in faces. They're just <laughs> they're bound to be kindred spirits. Right. <laughs> so I'd love to start out by having you tell our listeners your story and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So um. I was born on a dark and stormy night. No, just kidding. Um, I, so growing up, I was always a little bit bigger than um, my classmates, but I was also a successful athlete. And so I didn't have a lot of like body image issues and I didn't get a lot of teasing for my body. Um, and then sort of my junior year of high school, my friend's mom trying to be, I think, I mean, I'm sure she was well-meaning said to me, you know, well, you're going to lose that extra weight, right? You don't want to go to college fat, do you? And um, the thing about eating disorders that uh, we think is that sort of um, genetics loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of my experience before that moment. I hadn't really thought about my body size or food or exercise to manipulate it. And after that moment, I really didn't think about much else. Um, and so I started dieting and went down a spiral into being um, hospitalized for an eating disorder. Wow. Um, and I was, I was extremely lucky in my recovery in that my mental recovery happened really fast and that's not sort of typical. So I'm just, I just lucked out there. Um, but I, when I was in the hospital, um, I was gaining weight from being treated for the eating disorder. And so I was being simultaneously treated for an eating disorder and told by my other doctors that, um, I should lose weight to be healthy, which isn't a thing that should happen. Um, and so that sort of led to a period of years where doctors were prescribing me diets. Um, and I was trying to do them. And uh, I had the experience that I learned later almost everyone has, which is I would lose weight in the short term. And then no matter what I did, I would gain weight back in the long term, often gaining back more than I had lost. Mm -hmm. And so I found before I found size acceptance, I found help at every size because I decided I was going to research and find the best diet. Because that's what I studied in school. I focused on um, research methods and statistical analysis. And so I thought, well, you know, I know how to do this. Why have I never read the studies on these diets? And in doing that, found that there was not a single study anywhere where more than a tiny fraction of people had succeeded in long-term weight loss. And that in fact, the most common outcome was that people would lose weight and then gain it back, which is what had happened to me. Yeah. And so that's kind of when I came across, um, help at every size. And so now when I say, um, you know, 
healthy habits are our best chance at a healthy body, knowing that health is not an obligation or a barometer of worthiness or entirely within our control. Like the idea that my best chance to be healthy is to practice healthy habits seems like a big um, flaming bag of obvious in an obvious box. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it seemed impossible that there was any way to pursue health without pursuing weight loss. I thought they were the same thing. Yeah, I mean, that's like what I think a lot of people can relate to is that they've just become so intertwined in our society. And so when people automatically assume that if you give up weight loss, you get you give up, you give up health, right? Which is totally not true. Right. It's, I mean, there are so many ways in, in looking in the research, you know, what I found was studies like Matheson et al. and Way et al. and the Cooper Institute longitudinal studies. And where if studies looked at behaviors, behaviors were a much uh, better uh, way to see what future health was going to be like than body size. It's much more accurate. Um, and again, this is not anything that's completely within our control and it's not anything that's an obligation. People get to choose how to prioritize their health and the path that they want to get there. Um, what concerned me and what led me into doing the work that I do is that I don't think we're being told the truth. Hmm. People aren't given all their options. You know, I've never gone to a doctor and had them say, well, you know, you can attempt weight loss and we think that will make you healthier. And it's also important to note that there is no study where people who have been fat and have lost weight and maintained that weight loss are studied against people who stayed fat or people who practiced health at every size to see what the health outcomes were. We're just assuming that if we make fat people into thin people, they'll be healthier. That's completely a hypothesis. It's never been shown. It's never been studied. Yeah, that's crazy. And so like what prompted you to kind of start to be an activist in this in this realm? Well, I, so I was practicing health at every size on my own and having, you know, uh, good results in terms of it repairing my relationships with my body and with food and with movement. Um, and so I had gone uh, out to this uh, country western two-step lesson and um, a friend of the person I went with was like, oh, I've been wanting to take these lessons. Do you want to take them with me? And through a series of... Um, of taking lessons and going to a competition, we decided to compete in ballroom dancing together. Mm, Okay. And so I went to my first competition and I don't know how I was so naive, but I honest to God thought that the judging would be about my dancing. And then I had judges come up and say things like, um, what a waste it was that I had this talent at this size, you know, like you're going to lose weight, right? Like what a, what a shame to waste that talent you have. Um, you know, and judges who said they wouldn't improve my scores unless I lost 50 pounds. Um, and then sort of the, the defining moment I was leaving a competition and I had had a bad day and I was sick and I was carrying all my stuff and I was at the elevator and this judge came charging up to me and she said, we have to talk about your waltz. And I said, I know I, I had a bad day. And she said, no, it's that dress. And I had worn this dress. It's a beautiful, um, uh, dress with spaghetti straps and velvet. And she said, um, I couldn't stand to look at you. Oh my God. And I said, I had that moment of like, do I just like go off on this person or do I like be whatever classy? So I was like, I'm just too tired. So I said, okay. And she said, I mean, I couldn't stand to look at you. And I said, okay. And that happened a couple more times. And then she said, you know, I talked to your teacher and he said, I could talk to you about this. And then she put her finger in my face and was like, you have no business wearing spaghetti straps. 
Wow. <laughs> I was like, in that moment, I was like, bing, like this has nothing to do with me. Nobody gets that upset about spaghetti straps. Yeah. And I was like, this is your issue and your project. And I just had the, this moment of complete clarity. Oh, you have issues and you're trying to project them on me and I don't want them. You can keep them. Yeah. Um, and so I said, well, you know, you, I'm 30, so you don't have to ask anybody for permission to talk to me. I said, I probably won't choose to change the dress, but I appreciate you taking the time to tell me it's such a problem for you. <laughs> you are brilliant got- to be able to think that quick on your feet and <laughs> not have such an emotional reaction to it. The sort of story of my life, I'm really good at the quick witty response, but not always at choosing when it's like, well, that was witty, but I shouldn't have said it to the dean of my college, you know? So, um, <laughs> so yeah, the quick response has never been a problem for me, luckily, but learning how to utilize it has been. Um, so it worked out in this moment. She got really red and like sort of bulgy veiny, but she walked away, which was at that point, my entire goal mm-hmm. I was like, I want this to be done. But sort of in that moment, cause I had done a lot of, um, queer activism in college. Right. And I, I was, you know, I have been doing like social justice work, um, since I really had an understanding of what it was, I, I launched a protest in kindergarten that got me in trouble. Like that's when I started my career of acting, but yeah. I had never thought of being fat as sort of that, mm-hmm. like that fat people were, you know, marginalized and systematically oppressed as a group of people because of our appearance. And in that moment that became really crystal clear to me. Mm-hmm. And so I, what I realized was that I wanted to be a fat dancer, but I was going to have to be a fat activist to get it done. Wow. And so in that moment, I sort of became a fat activist. And so my first real act there was, um, apparently this woman did this to a lot of people, but nobody ever said anything because they were so ashamed. So I told everyone who would listen, <laughs> yes. everyone I had ever, you know, and I was at the competition. So there's hundreds of us. And I was like, let me just tell you what happened with this judge. And so people were like, we should get her kicked off judging. She should be allowed to judge anymore. And I was like, no, no, like, you know, we'll win without her scores. That's fine. But I just want people to know that this is how she's treating people mm-hmm. and that I'm not going to be silent about it. So that, and then I sort of, I started the blog dances with fat, but it kind of all started from that moment of realizing like, Oh, I get treated poorly because of how I look. And like, that is the same kind of, you know, marginalization, marginalization and systematic oppression that I fought as a queer person, mm-hmm. you know, living in Texas in the mid nineties. So so yeah, that was sort of how I ended up being an activist. Yeah. And you know, what's so interesting to me is kind of, cause you, you know, you, when you tell your story, you talk about when you were a junior in high school and I can't remember if you said it was your aunt or whoever said that comment to you about your body. Um, and that really like triggered your, like an, an eating disorder. And then later on in life, you know, you were able to take it and, you know, turn it into this like force of positivity. How did, how did you like not, how you know, I know you healed your eating disorder brain, but it's kind of amazing to me that, you know, it, it prompted you to kind of go in this, in this entirely other direction where you're just like, no, like this is who I am. And, you know, people are going to accept it and I'm going to stand up for the rights of others like me versus, you know, in the past where it had kind of triggered this really like, um, you know, the, the eating disorder for you. First of all, I had never thought of those two points in my history as, sort of diametrically opposed to that. So I'll probably, I'm going to have to think about that and probably blog about it later. I will give you credit. Oh, you. I've never really thought about that. Like that. Um, but yeah, I think, um, so it was a, it was a progression, right? So I became a fat activist in that moment. I wasn't sure that my body was beautiful necessarily. And I was still stuck in what's called sort of the good fatty, bad fatty dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, well, I'm healthy and I'm active. So therefore I'm a good fat person. So you shouldn't treat me that way. And that's, totally bullshit. You know, and as I started to sort of peel back the layers of what society had told me, 
I realized like how much healthism and ableism was wrapped up into anti-fat sentiment. Mm-hmm. And so, but what I started, when I started the blog, I just wanted to talk about like, what's it like to be a ballroom dancer who's fat? Yeah. You know? And so that was sort of my goal. And I was writing really for like six people. And one of them was my mom. Oh, so she's always been very supportive. My mom, since kindergarten, man, she was in that school every other week, but she was just always like fighting for me and for my right to do what I wanted to do and speak out about stuff I thought was important. My mom is incredible. Um, and you know, to this day, that's amazing. Yeah. I'm super, super lucky in that way and really grateful. Um, but yeah, so, um, so yeah, I wrote this piece. I decided to see like, how many negative messages do I get about my body in a 24 hour period? And so I sort of counted and then I blogged about it. And then I extrapolated, like, if this happens every day, it's like 365,000 something messages a year. I get that there's something wrong with my body. Wow. Right. And how is this supposed to support my health? Mm-hmm. And so that blog, somebody, I don't know how anybody found it, but somebody found it and they sent it to Jezebel.com. Okay. And Jezebel.com was, and at this point I didn't even really know about the fattest here. I didn't know about other people blogging. I was just sort of in my own world doing my own thing. Um, which led to some funny blogs because there was some stuff I thought that I literally was the first person to think, which is hilarious now, but I was like, Oh, I've discovered this. And then some of you like, yeah, Marilyn Wan said that like, you know, <laughs> don't we all do that though? That's years like, ago, no, be like, have to email Marilyn Wan and be like, I'm so sorry. Like I said, I said this, but apparently and she's like, and Marilyn Wan is totally cool as is everyone, you know, who I've met, um, from the fat acceptance movement, especially the people who were founders of it. But anyway, so yeah, so I was doing my own thing and then Jezebel published this and then I got 10,000 hits to my blog in one day. Wow. Which to me might as well have been 10 million mm-hmm. at that point. Like I couldn't conceptualize 10,000 people reading something I wrote. Right. And sort of that started me on this path of like, oh, let's see what else is out there. Oh, let's start educating myself. Where do I still have these, these areas where I'm, you know, don't understand my own privileges and where I'm saying things that aren't really helpful and that are actually healthiest in nature. And so that was kind of the beginning of that journey. Oh, that's so cool. That's, that's, that's awesome. I didn't realize, um, like how it all kind of started and and grew to, to where it is. So let's talk a little bit about size stigma because, um, you know, you really bring to light, like how, how prevalent it is in, in our culture and, um, you know, how, how people in fatter bodies are, are subject to unfair treatment and stereotypes. And as you mentioned in your work, like the, the solution is, is weight weight loss. Like like that's the kind of the mainstream solution. It's like, okay, if you want to protect yourself against like the oppression, you have to just lose weight to fit into the mold. But what are your thoughts on the influence of size stigma on women's body image? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, from a very, very young age now, as early as five girls are really inundated with the idea that like a thin body is good. A fat body is bad and that you're in control of what size your body is going to be. And so, um, you know, the average girl starts dieting at age seven. Crazy. That is, that is ridiculous and it's Mm -hmm. dangerous. And it, so it sets up this idea where, um, fat stigma and weight stigma is completely normalized. Like, of course I shouldn't want to be fat. Of course, you know, I want to be thin. Of course thin bodies are better. And so it, when we talk about fat stigma, the first thing you have to do is change people's whole paradigm, mm-hmm. you know, from their belief that like, well, no, of course this is bad. And of course, like, if you don't like being teased for being fat, then, you know, we'll become thin. Right. And so there's, there are these layers, right? Because the first thing is to say, well, 
research shows that it's not really possible for me to become thin. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like saying, if I don't like not being able to reach my top cupboard, I should become taller. Would that work in theory? Yes. Is it something that can happen? No. Mm-hmm. Right. But then beyond that is the, ne- the next layer is look, even if I could become thin, I have no obligation to look how someone wants me to look, to be treated with basic human respect. Yeah. Right. The solution to bullying is not to give the bullies my lunch money and hope they stop beating me up. Right. And so we've got these layers, you know, that we have to look at that, you know, we aren't required to have a, you know, a body that meets the stereotype of beauty. We aren't required to want to have that body. We aren't required to try to have that body and the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are not size um, dependent. Right. You know, and so that's sort of the, to me, the beginning messages of that, but it has to start so young. When I talk to, to young girls, um, I, the talk I most often give is called the world is messed up. You're fine. Mm-hmm. And we talk about like all the messages and also how profitable these messages are. Yeah. Right? The diet and beauty industry make billions of dollars teaching us that we are not fine and we need their product to be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, my friend CJ Laguerre says it's uh, taking our self-esteem, uh, cheapening it and selling it back to us at a profit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, and so with, with, especially with younger girls, the more that we can teach them to keep their self-esteem to begin with, that it's not based on a stereotype of beauty and how closely they can approximate it, the better off they're going to be, the more protected they're going to be from these messages that try younger and younger to get them as lifelong customers on the diet and beauty roller coaster. Mm-hmm. And there's just so much of it like infiltrated in the media with, you know, like TV shows like The Biggest Loser and like when, you know, like the Oprah Weight Watcher stuff and like, you know, just <laughs> that this idea that... Um, um, you know, perpetuates that, that stigma and that all fat people want, don't want to be fat. Like that, yeah. like that they don't want it. So like we have to help them get away from it as well, you know? Right. And like the, and, and so it's not even just like these, these little kids seeing these models and these like, you know, size zero women and being told that, you know, they need to change their body and, and everything else. It's also like the messages of like fat people are like, you, you never want to be that. That's like the worst possible thing that you could be. And of course they want to change that too. Yeah. It's, it's one of the interesting things about my work because my goal is never to tell anybody how to live, mm-hmm. right? We have, except as it pertains to other people's civil rights, cause that's not optional. Right. But in terms of like our own personal decisions, you know, we have on my blog, something we call the underpants rule, which is I'm the boss of my underpants and you're the boss of your underpants and there's no underpants overlord. <laughs> I love that rule. <laughs> right. And so I'm, if people want to try to become smaller, they're allowed to do that. The reason I do the work I do is because I hear from people who hate themselves because they honest to God don't know there's another option. Mm-hmm. You know, people who are dieting, even though the last 20 diets haven't worked because they honest to God don't know there's another option. And to me, that's a huge problem. Yeah. Right. And so that's why I think it's important to tell people like you can love your body, however it is right now. And if you have issues with your body, you can be you and your body against that problem and not you against your body. Mm -hmm. These things are all options. And if you want to pursue health um, and you want to do it outside of weight loss, there are lots of options to do like all that stuff. Just letting people know these are options for you. And regardless of which option you choose, Appearance-based bullying is not okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Health-based bullying is not okay. Ability-based bullying is not okay. And, you know, you don't have to think of yourself as a thin person covered in fat, you know, that Oprah commercial. 
there are so many amazing things about Oprah and it's, it's really difficult to criticize her because of not only what she's done, but what she's overcome, the racism, the misogyny, the glass ceiling, you know, the crushing pressure to be thin. Yes. You know, and she's overcome all of these things to become so powerful and to do so much for so many people. And the fact that she still envisions herself as a thin woman buried in fat breaks my heart. Yeah. It's right? and she's allowed to do that, but it tells me like, this is the culture we live in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where someone who has accomplished all of these things still thinks that they would be more impactful if she had been thin when she did it. Mm-hmm. So such a sad state of affairs and that, you know, she's sort of, and it's not surprising that she's, you know, wrapped up in all of that, that the world that we live in tells her that every single day, but it's just so sad to me. It is, it is really sad because you're exactly right. It's like, you know, she's, she, she's such a, a role model in, in many other, in many other ways. And yeah, to have, you know, sometimes she may be known as like the most powerful woman in the world or the queen of media or whatever you want to call her to have to, to kind of expose this area that like she believes that, you know, her life would have been better if, if she had been thin. It, I think it's just, yeah, it's, it's really sad. And I think that because she's so influential to so many women that, um, it's just the, the, that message that she's sending is just, uh, I, I feel like it sets everything back <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah. Or, I mean, I think, um, I think it's also helping some people to see, you know, because here's someone who had every resource in the world available to her and yet she still has not been able to become and stay thin. That's true. Yeah. Right. It's a good way and of looking at it. Meanwhile, she made all these people famous, you know, we, Dr. Oz who dude, um, and Dr. <laughs> you know, all these people have become famous because she's experienced short-term weight loss on their programs, which we learn almost anybody can do. Mm-hmm. And yet ultimately none of their programs worked because there's a diversity of body sizes and some people aren't meant to be thin. Um, and I think too, like this message of like, my life would be better if I were thin. Mm-hmm. My work is about saying, no, your life would be better if you lived in a world where you weren't stigmatized for being fat. Right. Right. Cause people, I get things all the time, you know, I just want to be thin because I just want people to treat me better. And I just want to be able to get the clothes that I want. I just be able to, you know, fit in an airplane seat. And, you know, and I understand that those things make life difficult. I'm not saying that they don't in any way, but I'm saying that you don't, that changing our bodies is not the only path to, to make that better. Mm-hmm. That changing the world, that's saying we're going to have a world that celebrates the diversity of body sizes. We're going to create businesses that sell the clothes that fat women want to wear. We're going to work with airlines to make policies so that people of different sizes don't have different experiences on their planes. You know, that it's not because I'm fat that makes my life more difficult. It's because the world is fat phobic. That's what makes my life difficult. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that because, uh, I actually received an email from one of my readers who commented about how I can't relate to her because her body size is so much larger than mine. Um, and I won't use the exact like term that she used to describe my body, but, um, she basically said thin people are inherently happier. And she, she said to me, she said, can you honestly tell me that you don't think I'm going to be immensely happier and sexier and more successful when I lose weight? And I can't relate to this woman. I, you know, and I know you can't either cause you're not her, but you know, like, I just, I do think it's important to say that, you know, that you, that it is possible. Like, would you, would you say it is possible to be happy and sexy and successful in any body? And that, yes, we live in a world that doesn't necessarily support that, but you can make that possible for yourself. Um, I would say, I mean, 
it's hard to say like what people's situations are. Like if she wants to be, you know, a straight size model, Mm -hmm. then that's probably not something that she's ever going to be able to achieve Mm -hmm. because her body is fat and because the way that the world works for me, it's not about the outcome because I can't necessarily control the outcome. Mm -hmm. It's about who do I want to be in the world and what do I want to stand up for and what do I believe is true? And so for me, it's saying, you know, First of all, I don't think that I could become thin if I wanted to, but even if I wanted to become thin, you know, even, or rather, even if I could become thin, that to me is not the path to my liberation. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if my body, if it's easier because I'm thin, then I want to look at what can I change to make it easier for fat people. And not everybody has to do that. People are allowed to try to become thin because it will move them into a less oppressed class. Yeah. Right, they're allowed to do that. It's I don't often compare oppressions because there are different histories and it's complicated, but I will say that as a queer woman, I was told that, you know, my life would be harder because I wasn't straight, that um being queer is bad for society, and that I should choose to become straight because I could. Mm-hmm. Right. And as a fat woman, I've told, I'm told that uh, being fat is bad for society. My life will be easier if I'm thin. And so I should choose to become thin because I can. Yeah. You know, and so for both of those messages, you know, what I see reflected back in society as a queer person and the way that, you know, queer activism is working, um, is very different from the way that fat is working and queer activism obviously is not anywhere near where it needs to be. We're leaving so many people behind in terms of trans rights and people of color within queer community. But, um, but just looking at the way that if I say, you know, I'm here, I'm queer, get used to it. I, you know, I'm very happy being queer. I love, you know, being queer or I'm here. I'm fat. Get used to it. I love being fat. I'm happy being fat. Those are received very differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, um, so I want to circle back to something you talked about earlier, which was like the good fatty syndrome, because I think that's a really important thing for everyone to understand. And, you know, it's really this idea that, you know, if you are a fat person, that if you are doing healthy behaviors, that, that you do that to gain respect and it makes your physical size. Okay. Am I explaining that correctly. Exactly. Like you hear people couch it like there are two types of fat people. They're the kind who eat healthy and exercise and like they're okay. And then they're the kind who just, you know, they just sit on the couch and eat bonbons all day. And like, you know, they deserve our vitriol. And so it's this idea that like thin people can behave however they want, but once you're fat, you have to do specific things to be allowed to get basic human respect. Mm-hmm. So one of my, one of my readers wanted to ask you that, uh, she writes, you appear you, Reagan, appear as a good fatty by being committed to fitness, yet you constantly state over and over that no one has a moral obligation or responsibility to fitness or even health. How do you work in both of those spaces? Yeah, it's so it's really important to me to state that because the thing about privilege in society is that it's conferred, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't necessarily ask for it and I can't give it away, but because of the platform it gives me, because people are more likely to listen to me because I, the hobbies that I enjoy, they respect, I can use that platform to talk about the ways that that's messed up. Mm -hmm. Right. And so to me, I do these things because I like them, you know, and I used to do the, the good, you know, the good fatty thing, like, well, I'm healthy and I'm, you know, active as if that made me more worthy of respect. And so I've, it's a mistake I've definitely made. I understand why people make it, but it's something that we have to stop doing, right? Every fat person 
should be allowed to participate in the hobbies that we want to participate in, right? So if we want to be involved in fitness and we want to talk about that, that should be okay. But if we don't want to be involved in fitness and we want to, you know, crochet or watch every episode of Star Wars that ever existed, whatever our thing is, mm-hmm. right? I try to, I say like run a marathon, have a Netflix marathon, morally the same. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> right. It doesn't make you better or worse that you've chosen to do this on your Sunday. Yeah. You know, and so I think because these are the things that I like to do and because part of my notoriety is because these are the things I like to do. One of the reasons why people ask me to speak and, you know, read my blog, I also want to take that platform to say, I do this because I like to, but it doesn't make me better than anybody else. And, you know, nobody is obligated to participate in fitness, but everybody should be welcome because it's a bit of a double-edged sword. You know, as a fat person who participates in fitness, I do get you know, a lot of privilege from people who believe in the good fatty, bad fatty dichotomy. Mm-hmm. I also get treated really terribly, you know, by people who think that fat people don't belong in fitness. Yeah. You're subjected to a lot of, uh, like abuse, I would call it, you know, in terms of the trolls and the people who, who come after you and, and, and insult you. Yeah. It's, it's a very strange thing. Like that anybody, cares so much about what I want to do as a hobby that they're going to, you know, go online and complain about it or start their own website to complain about me or, you know, show up at my half Ironman to take pictures and video of me or confront me in the swim club. Like they're my special little snowflakes. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, how do you deal with that? That was another question from, from one of my uh, listeners. So dealing with trolls has become a thing that is just par for the course. And it shouldn't be that way, right? It shouldn't be like, well, if if you didn't want to be treated with respect, you know, if you wanted to be treated with respect, you shouldn't have said that you deserve it because, you know, obviously people are going to come after you for that. That's not normal, mm-hmm. right? You shouldn't blog about being a fat person, you know, who's a dancer if you didn't want people to tell you they hope you die. Like, that's not normal, but that's mm-hmm. what has become normal, mm-hmm. you know, par for the course for um, fat people who stand up for our right to be treated with respect. And so part of the way I deal with it is that, you know, sort of what's my other option, right? Like, am I going to change my life because people are, you know, jerks who don't know how to behave appropriately? No. You know, am I going to allow them to bully me into changing my life or what I do? No. There's simply, you know, to me, there's not another reasonable option other than just do what I do and deal with it. And so another part of it is I just kind of remember, like, how sad they are. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I'm out living this cool life and they're at home bitching about it. Yeah. And like how sad that they've arrived at that. And I wish that, you know, for them that if that's not what brings them true happiness, that they figure out what does. And if it is what brings them true happiness, like, wow, how sad. Yeah. So bad for them. Um, but yeah, so it's just about dealing with it, compartmentalizing it, remembering that, you know, it's not about me about, you know, and then in some cases it's about, figuring out how I can maintain as much personal safety as possible in what may be a really truly dangerous situation. Um, you know, where somebody's made a death threat at a speaking gig I'm going to, or where, you know, they're publishing a minute by minute schedule of where I'm going to be in the Iron Man and people are like showing up. So it's, you know, it's all about kind of balancing it and, and deciding that this is what I want to do and I'm not going to let them stop me. And just to be clear, if I decided I don't want to deal with with this anymore, that would be okay too. Like people who've said like, look, I just can't, this is too much. That's a totally legitimate choice. Nobody should have to deal with this. And people who do have this happen to them get to deal with it however they want to. Mm -hmm. And if they want to change their identity and enter the witness protection program, like whatever, 
you do what you do to keep yourself safe and happy. And so I'm not saying like the right path is to deal with this. I'm saying this is the path I choose. What drives you to keep going like that? A lot of what drives me are, you know, the emails and the comments that I get from people who say, you know, God, I, I, you know, it never occurred to me that I could be happy until I, you know, saw your work, mm-hmm. you know, or people who have literally said, you know, it's considering killing myself. Wow. And I came upon your blog and, you know, it's just given me so much hope, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, and, and then simple emails, you know, Oh, I've always wanted to take a dance class, but I always thought I couldn't because of my size. And so then I saw you and I realized like, I can do this. And so I signed up for a dance class. Like it's just these people that, you know, one of the things that our society does around fatness that is really dangerous is this idea that if you show fat people as anything other than miserable and self-loathing, you're somehow promoting obesity. Yeah. Yeah. The the glorifying, the glorifying obesity. Yeah. Glorifying obesity. Yeah. So that like Kelly Knighting at over 400 pounds finished a marathon and became the heaviest person, a Guinness world record holder, heaviest person to complete a marathon. And people didn't want to report it because they said that it would be promoting obesity or glorifying obesity. (laughs) Like somebody's going to go like, Oh, well I've always wanted to do a marathon. So I guess first I have to gain 300 pounds and then I'll just start some kind of walking program. Like nobody, that's not how it works. Like Mary Lou Retton is a professional speaker, but she doesn't glorify shortness. <laughs> yeah. by existing, right? She just is, happens to be a short person who also is a professional speaker. So th- what this does though, is it creates a world where fat people have no role models. Mm-hmm. We are denied any representation of ourselves that is positive. And so people believe that you can't be fat and happy because they've literally never seen a fat, happy person. Not because we don't exist because society colludes to keep us from being in the limelight. Yeah, that was actually another question from one of my one of my um, listeners was that you know you're doing the Ironman and you know in that world of like triathlons, Ironmans, um, it feels very countercultural to be a fat woman. And so she she actually wanted to know like how does it feel to be at the forefront of something where that she assumes there aren't very many role models. Yeah, it's interesting. There are actually a lot, people of all sizes participating in triathlons and Ironmans. Um, you know, it's, and it's for the most part, been a welcoming community, the actual athletes. Like it's important to remember that my trolls aren't actual athletes typically. Yeah. They're they're not people who are, they're not training for an Ironman. They're not participating. One of the funniest threads ever. Somebody said, you know, Reagan's doing this half. Why don't we all do a half Ironman on this day to show her, you know, that anybody can do it. And the excuses that, you know, Oh, my, my gym won't let me swim in the pool more than 20 minutes. So I couldn't train like, wow, I have to do an Ironman, but it was really interesting to see these people who come at me with such vitriol when challenged to do what I do, be like, no, 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 not that. Um, so it's really important to remember that, you know, by and large, the athletes who I meet and the better an athlete they are, the nicer they even tend to be. Yeah. Right. Because where the problem seems to happen in this world is when people uh, are trying to get their self-esteem by being better than somebody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and trying to, well, you can't be called an athlete cause you're fat and I'm an athlete and being an athlete is what makes me a good person. And so it's important that I'm better than you. So like this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you experience a little bit of, of that. Um, you know, it is a weird thing and it's a weird thing also because again, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, within the health at every size community, people will often email me and say like, how does this possibly fit into a health at every size, you know? Uh, practice for you to go do these things that are really difficult and may lead to injury and way more than you need to do to be healthy. Mm-hmm. 
And the answer is that it's not part of my health at every size practice. It's just a personal goal I set for myself. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, it's me saying, this is my body and I get to do whatever I want with it. So it's amazing that the same people who complain that I'm not healthy because I'm fat, then if I want to, you know, go and do something physical, say, oh no, no, that's not healthy. So you can't do that either. Yeah. yeah. Right? There's a very narrow box where apparently like I'm doing moderate, you know, cardio in my house with all the blinds drawn under a tent where they're comfortable with me. Yeah. You're damned if you do. And you're damned if you don't. Yeah. Like we, you know, you better exercise to lose weight. You have an obligation to do that, but like, don't do it, you know, outside of your house, because if you do, I'll moo at you from my car. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this sort of like can't win. And that's because what people want to do is feel better about themselves by putting down fat people. Mm-hmm. But it's not about health. It's not about any of that. It's about people want to put down fat people. People, you know, enjoy engaging in weight-based stigma because of whatever it buys for them. And so that's what it's about, which is why you get into these constant no-win scenarios. Yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, hearing about the, the way that people treat you, like just the, the extent that they go to, the time that they waste, like, it's almost like ridiculous. Like, do you, do you start to see it? Like, do you build up this tolerance and resiliency where you're almost like, it, you see it as like ridiculous? Like, or does it still, does it still emotionally hurt you? At this point, it very rarely emotionally hurts me. It can get fatiguing a little bit at times, but it's mm-hmm. just so, I mean, you, people can't say anything new. Mm-hmm. Right? Part of the problem, what's fatiguing is like, oh, it's the 300th time this week I've been told fatty's going to fat. Like, seriously? Yeah. Do better. Like, I just want a better quality of troll. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, fat, fatty's going to fat fattily uses fat as four different parts of speech. Now I'm impressed. Fatty's going to fat, not so much. Yeah. Yeah. So it gets fatiguing, but mostly, I mean, kind of what I want to do sometimes is search the IP addresses for where they are and send them options for volunteering in their community. Hey, you seem to have a lot of free time. <laughs> like here are some places where you could go and actually help somebody. Yeah. Like, do you ever just of, like want to track them down to just like face to face them and just <laughs> see if they show <laughs> up to just to really see who they are and just see if they would ever say anything to your face? Yeah. It's pretty interesting. I mean, yeah, I, Mostly I just would like them to do something productive with their time. Like, you're not going to stop me. You're not, you're no more irritating than like, you know, a fly buzzing in around my ear. Yeah. So why don't you just go do something with your life? Like, feel free to use your free time to do something. Like, why don't you learn another language? Why don't you get really good at a computer game? Why don't you learn to crochet? Like, why don't you do anything mm-hmm. but waste your time, you know, sending me emails, calling me names. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, it, you're right. It's just like, I just don't even know what to say to it. Cause it's just like, get a life, get a life. You know, you, you, the world could be such a better place if you put it into positive stuff, but you got to wonder, like these people must be really angry and unhappy with their lives. Like really, yeah. really, really yeah. sad, really sad. Um, with, with kind of on the heels of that, one of my listeners wanted to know what kind of self-care you do, um, to keep yourself healthy and sane, given the fact that there's probably a lot of stress that comes with educating and pioneering against a homogenized idea of normal. Yeah. It's, uh, self-care becomes a really important thing. And I think for everybody who does activism or who pushes against, um, you know, the, the things in society that hurt us. So for me, a lot of it is, um, you know, for, well, first and foremost, I have this little mantra I use whenever sort of negativity or anti-fat sentiment comes to me. And that mantra is, Hey, that's bullshit. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I say it constantly throughout, like see a billboard, you know, television ad, hate mail that comes through, whatever. It's like, oh yeah, you've bought into this paradigm and that's cool for you, but I know better mm-hmm. for me. Um, and so that helps me a lot. Uh, reading the work of other people I have on my blog, I have a, a page called, um, blogs I love. Mm-hmm. And so reading other people's work and, you know, being reminded, uh, about why we do the work we do and the fact that the world is seriously messed up, but I'm okay. Mm-hmm. So that's a big part of self-care physically. You know, I do, you know, a lot of activity, which for me is something that, um, helps and relaxes me. The Iron Man is interesting. The, the reason that I did the Iron Man, it's the end part of a project to push out of my comfort zones. Okay. Um, I've always been involved in athletics, but I've only ever done things that I'm good at immediately. Hmm. Right. So like I started to play volleyball. I was really good. The first day I played volleyball through my adult life. I tried to play basketball one time. I wasn't good at basketball. I've never played basketball again. Right. (laughs) And so I was like, I wonder what lessons there are sort of outside this comfort zone. And so I, you know, the, the marathon was really the first part of that. And I was really bad at that. And then I, um, through a series of listening to audio books and becoming curious about the Ironman decided to try that. And so, um, it makes it more difficult because I don't really enjoy running, biking, and swimming. Right? I'm not, <laughs> and there's nothing else to it, right? Like, it's I'm not just that all sport. day long for a really long time. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not good at it, and I'm not really having that much fun. And so it's harder because I lost – dance was really an outlet for me. When I was dancing, mm-hmm. first of all, because, you know, I was – really good at dancing. Right. So people would say, Oh, you're a terrible dancer, fatty, whatever. And I'd be like, count the trophies, dude. I'm fine. Um, but with running and biking and swimming, I'm not good. Right. And so there's this other thing of like, remembering, like, I don't have to be good at athletics to be a good person. And like, it's not something to, you know, you can't criticize my work because I'm a slow runner. No. Right. Like the right, the fact that fat people have the right to live in fat bodies without bullying and stigma and harassment is not dependent on whether or not I can run a seven hour, six hour, five hour marathon. Mm-hmm. Right. And so kind of remembering that is a big part of my self care right now too. And then, you know, just doing the stuff I need to stay healthy, making sure I'm stretching, making sure I, you know, I'm treating my body well, those kind of things always come into play. Yeah. I mean, I give you, I give you a lot of credit. Like I, I hate, I hate running so much. I can't, I can't even, I've been saying I was going to do a 10 K for like, I don't even know, 20 years. And every year I'm like, yeah, maybe I'll do a 10 K this year. And then I'm like, no. And I think I've just come to this point with myself where I'm just like, I'm okay if I don't do it. So I really, I really, uh, I admire your, uh, your, your courage to just like, to, to really like challenge yourself outside the comfort zone. Cause that's awesome. (laughs) I admire your consistency in not doing it. (laughs) (laughs) And then finally just really letting it go. Like I was just like, I'm not even going to put that on my list this year. (laughs) Yeah. I think about it daily. Like maybe I should just never. And like people send me shirts that say, you know, if I'm running, you better be running too. Cause the only reason is that something's chasing me. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, God, I can't wait until I can wear that shirt again. Like, yeah, I want to have a, a, you know, closet full of shirts that explain that I'm never running after, you know, cross finish line, get shiny metal, never doing this again. Yeah. Yeah. So how's it going for you? 
It's, it's been interesting. It's been a rough start to the year. I had um, a little foot injury that's getting better now. I had a repair to my bike that ended up taking a month, which was huge to be off my bike for a month. Mm. And then I developed, but it was like, okay, I can't, you know, bike, but I can run. Okay. I'm injured with running, but I can swim. And then I started to get hives every time I swam. I developed a chlorine sensitivity. Oh no. <laughs> it was like, was something's possible. wrong with everything. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I'm kind of getting back from that. It's, you know what? It's hard. It's, it's a hard thing to achieve and it takes a ton of work and even putting a ton of work in, you know, as I learned at the 70.3, I had done the work. I, everything, you know, pointed to the fact that I was going to at least get through the swim, right? The swim was, is my best of the events. And then I didn't. So there's no guarantees. Um, and it's like, I'm working really hard because the nightmare scenario is that I don't finish this Ironman and I have to decide if I want to try again. Yes. Yeah. Right. I, at this point, I'm like looking at November 20th as the golden day when I get a shiny medal and I never have to run again. Mm-hmm. Like I cannot wait. And so the idea of like not making it and being like, do I want to say this is a goal I'm not going to achieve or do I want to train for another one of these? Like it's a nightmare. So that is what drives me every day. Like cross finish line, get medal. Yeah, I know. I, I know what I, so I, I kind of look at it in a different way in that you, you're doing everything that you can to do it. And so no matter if you get a medal or not, like you, you really did do it because yeah. there's nothing you could have done differently. It just, it just the outcome again, it's more about like the behavior versus the outcome. Yeah. And like, you know, the discipline to every day be like, I don't want to run. And like, it's, you know, I'm like, I don't want to go running. And so then just getting dressed and getting out the door is, you know, an achievement. But then for most people they say, but then when I start running, I'm so happy. I am not every minute of running. I'm like, I don't want to run anymore. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I pass the time by thinking of excuses I could give my coach for why I stopped running in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like I could tell him that, you know, I, you know, there was a flood. I could say like, you know, just whatever. And, uh, you know, I complete the run, but like sometimes that's how, that's how I spend the time. Like what excuses could I put into the software for why I didn't finish this and quit right now and went home. Wow. So, so yeah, it's, it's about, to me, it's about sort of pushing and overcoming that and seeing like, what is it like to not be good? My swim coach was talking about, um, swimming with a parachute and she was like, it was so depressing. Like I could see the bottom and I wasn't going anywhere. And I was like, welcome to my world. <laughs> like, that's what it's like for me all the time. Like people with strollers chatting on cell phones are passing me. I'm super slow. Yeah. Right. And so it's like, it can be demoralizing. And part of it is like, can I really be okay with running my own race? Can I really become comfortable with not being good at something? And the fact that I'm never going to be good, mm-hmm. you know, like so much of my identity is based on competing and winning. I've done that my whole life, you know, competing and winning, competing and winning. I, you know, I didn't just play the clarinet. I, you know, competed all through school and then went to school and majored in it and went to Carnegie Hall. Like, and like so much of my identity is based on that. So what happens when my identity is I'm somebody who does this because I've decided it's a goal and I'm just terrible at it every single day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've got a real competitive edge in your, <laughs> in your head for sure. I don't have yeah. that. So <laughs> I admire it. <laughs> I was always used to losing at stuff. So like, I just, <laughs> I have the opposite. <laughs> When you realize like how easy it is to become a jerk, right? Like I was riding my bike and I was like 40 miles into this ride that was going terribly. And this girl had just on the bike path, I had to have like a little rental place. And this girl in like a dress and flip flops had rented this adorable bike with a basket and a bell. And she's just like so happy. And I was like, I hate that girl. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) 
Like, that girl. Now you're starting to hate children. There's a problem. (laughs) Like, hate people who look happy when they're exercising. Like, nobody made you do this. That girl, you could be that girl. You go put this bike down, go rent one with a seat that looks like a couch cushion, and, like, ride along the ocean and smile. You could be that girl right now. But you, it, it has helped me see, like, how people become that kind of person who like scoffs at people because they don't do the same things they do or whatever. Like it's easy to become a jerk and you have to fight that. Yeah. That's so funny. Oh, that's so great. Well, I, I will be following your story and I know like a lot of people will. And I just, I really admire the, the courage and, um, to just, to do something that you don't like and to follow through on something so challenging. Like it just, I, I, I mean, I can't even do a 10 K. So like an Ironman would just be like, no. <laughs> so I think that's awesome. Do you still dance at all? Do you still, are you still in that realm? Not right now. It's actually, that's been kind of hard. Like whenever I'm always trying to get my coach to put like a dance class in as part of like conditioning or whatever, <laughs> like, so, you know, <laughs> doesn't it make sense? And he's like, not really. Um, so dancing and, uh, doing endurance sports require the exact opposite. And part of my physiology is that I am build fast twitch muscle pretty easily. Okay. And fast twitch muscle is helpful in some ways, but you don't want as much of it. Endurance sports require a different type of muscle and a different type of work ethic, right? Dance is explosive movement. It's, it's a weird sport, right? Go out totally cold, smile and bow. Now work as hard as you can for two minutes, Mm -hmm. right? You're doing the splits, you're spinning, you're moving through all planes of space and then stop dead, smile and bow. And the whole time, try to look like it's no effort, right? Right. And then go change clothes and do it again. You can do the eight to 16 times in a row in a competition. Mm -hmm. That's a weird thing to prepare for, right? It's essentially doing high intensity intervals for two minutes at a time. Mm -hmm. And, but endurance sports is just, you know, go with this moderate effort, but just keep going forever. And so it's because the training is so different. I don't, I'm not dancing right now and I definitely miss it. Yeah. So one of my, one of my, um, readers, uh, she's actually doing a dance competition in a couple of weeks and she was wondering, where do you find your dance clothes or where did you use to? Yeah. So finding dance clothes as a fat dancer is so difficult. Mm -hmm. Like I once forgot my dance panties. And I ended up like they had this huge thing of vendors, like 20, like, I don't know, 12 or 13 vendors probably were selling dance panties, but I had to go to Lane Bryant and get a big pair of black underpants because they don't, nobody had my size. Yeah. Right. So there, um, in terms of practice clothes, like dance skin has some plus size stuff. Um, uh, but I, for my costumes, I always had to have them made custom. Yeah. Um, which sucks. And it, you know, I was able to like make arrangements and stuff. I mean, so you can get a custom dance costume made for a few hundred dollars or you can get one for, you know, $6,500, right? So it just depends. So I was all, you know, I sort of worked with seamstresses and I always store my own costumes to cut down on the price and stuff to make it something that I could still do. Um, So I can, I can glue rhinestones onto a dress like a champ, which is not a skill I ever thought I would have. Um, (laughs) Bedazzle it. (laughs) Yeah, I am not a crafty person at all. So like the fact that I learned to do that, it's like my own little rhinestone iron man mm-hmm. but um but yeah so unfortunately i there aren't a lot of places that sell um you know competition wear for plus size dancers which is just sad yeah but that's the the situation um and also uh 
I always thought it would be cool, but I never got around doing it to start an exchange for plus size dancers so that we could like, cause there are costume exchanges online because you know, you wear it for a season and then you want something else. Mm-hmm. So, um, perhaps search for other plus size dancers who might have costumes on those costume exchanges and stuff, but it's, I always had to have mine made. Sorry. I wish I had a better answer. Yeah. Too bad. Um, but maybe that's an opportunity for someone out there who's listening, who's into dance and a fashion designer and is looking to serve a different market. Yeah. And tell me if they're, if you're out there, tell me, I'll be happy to tell everyone I've ever met. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, one other question I got from reader, I just want to fire through it here. How do you deal with people who aren't ready to hear your message that are still caught up in the diet societal norms mentality? So I, I always want to respect the fact that people can do whatever they want with their bodies. Right. So if people want to like, I'm not going to go out to people's weight loss blogs and be like, don't do this, do health at every size. That's not my deal. Right. Right. But there is a requirement that people treat me with respect. You can believe whatever you want about weight and size, and you can put those beliefs to work in your own life. Mm-hmm. But none of that has anything to do with me or the fact that you need to treat me with basic human respect. Mm-hmm. And so if we can't get that done, now we have a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, and at that point, I, you know, I understand that I can't control other people's behaviors. I can only control my own. So like in situations where this is going to happen in person, I do a little boundary setting exercise where I state my boundary. I state the consequence if my boundary isn't met and then I follow through. Right. So like at, you know, if I'm going to some Thanksgiving dinner where there's going to be negative body talk, like if anybody says anything about what I'm eating again, I'm going to leave. Yeah. And then if they do, I leave. And so it's sort of setting up like what can I live with in terms of consequences? What can I actually follow through with? And then communicating that. So it's having that boundary. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's so important is to have those healthy boundaries and follow through on them because nobody, you, you have to protect your own emotional needs as well. Oh yeah. It's, that's hugely important. And just, you know, remembering like, this is about them. This isn't about me. Like it helps to, to flash back to that judge and her, you know, finger in my face about the spaghetti straps, mm-hmm. right? She was so like veins bulging out of her head, like spittle coming out of her mouth. That may or may not be true. That might just be how I remember her. She's turned but, into a big monster. I'm sure. Right. Head. <laughs> but like, and had nothing to do with, it wasn't me wearing spaghetti straps. It was everything that she has. The fact that she doesn't feel worthy to wear what she wants to wear. And how dare I flaunt my bare arms, you know, and all of this stuff that comes at me because other people have internalized these beliefs about fat hatred and they're having to live that. And it's hard to live that way. And so because I've opted out, I become a target of that rage, Mm -hmm. right? How dare you stop trying to be thin? when I spend my whole life trying to be thin or trying to maintain thin, like either trying to not be fat anymore or fearing becoming fat. Like so many people's lives are based around that. Right. You know, and so I try to have compassion for that and, and, you know, also practice the tolerance that I expect, right? My right to practice health at every size is predicated on somebody else's right to diet. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm not going to tell them how to live, but I am going to say, we're, you know, I'm not going to come at you and say that you shouldn't diet, you know, in my own spaces, I'm going to talk about the research about dieting and why I choose not to do it. But, you know, we're going to treat each other with respect. Do you think times are changing? Do you think that people are becoming more accepting of all bodies? Like, do do you see things starting to shift? I do. I think it's happening, you know, slowly. I think we're sort of, we chip away at the edges, but the edges push back Mm -hmm. because of the profitability of this message and how ingrained it is. Yeah. Right. Like what I think has happened is that the diet industry has made people into spokespeople for them. Right. Totally. Right. So that, 
it, they don't have to sell anymore because people are enforcing it on their friends and family. You know, like every year there's an article that comes out of the holidays. Tell your family and friends at the holidays that they need to lose weight. Like, are you high right now? <laughs> oh my God. I'm glad I didn't see that article. <laughs> it's, and I'm like, and I'm like, if the only time you can tell your family member something that you think is so important and life changing is at the holidays, because that's the only time you see them, how relevant are you in this person's life? Like back right. off, Yeah. you know, yeah. eat dinner and go away. But yeah. So like, because of that, it makes it hard to change. But I do think that we're making progress. I think more people are opting out. And, um, that's sort of what we need is a critical mass of people who are like, I am done with this. Mm-hmm. You know, and then because one of the things that happens is, you know, as people who fight for fat rights, we go to the the airlines and we say, we deserve to have the same experience as a thinner passenger, right? One person pays one fare for one flight. Right. Right. And the arbitrary measurements of your seats have actually nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. And, but other fat people are like, oh, I'm not sure about that. Maybe I should have to pay twice as much as the person next to me for the same service because of my body size. And so it takes a critical mass of people saying, no, 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 wait, that's really messed up. Yeah. Right? Like the airlines by that uh, logic could make seats that fit the average seven-year-old boy and make everybody pay for multiple seats. Right. Right. It's, we want the same experience that a thin person is having a seat that accommodates us for a flight to a different place. And so sort of, it's that critical mass that has to happen to, you know, as we create more and more change. But I do think things are changing. I do think things are getting better. And so uh, with that, like, you know, what can people do to become more like whether it's activism or just even being an advocate, like what are your suggestions for people? Um, first and foremost, I think is, um, just stop negative body talk Mm -hmm. completely. Like starting with your own mouth, right? Um, talking about other people, talking about your own body, you know, at the Oscars, just don't click on, you know, best and worst bodies who, who wore it best or worst to complain, you know what I mean? Like, uh, and then if you want to take that a step further, stand up against negative body talk. Mm-hmm. Right. And it can be something really direct, like, Oh, you know, I don't participate in negative body talk. So I'm going to go and hang out over here. Or it can be like a more you know, like global softer statement. Like, gosh, I wish we lived in a world where we could appreciate the diversity of bodies. Or I wish we lived in a world where, you know, women didn't put each other's bodies down. Mm-hmm right? Depending on kind of how you want. So I think that's a really important part of it. Um, really looking at your own personal feelings about people of different sizes, right? What judgments are you making about those people? And then, and then consciously, um, reworking that, right? So if you have a response, it would, it's not odd for people to have anti-fat sentiment, right? It's, that's not surprising in a world that's so anti-fat. So people can, change that though, by becoming aware of it and then replacing it with a statement like, I, you know, I appreciate the diversity of body sizes or all bodies are amazing or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say for me, I wasn't ready to start with like believing my body was beautiful. That's not where I started. I started with having gratitude for my body for what it does for me. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I realized that I had spent so much time hating my body for not looking like a Photoshop picture of some celebrity that I actually didn't have any gratitude for everything my body did. Yeah. And you're going out there and doing all these dance competitions and stuff that so yeah. many other people could never do. Yeah. Well, not just that, but like blinking, yeah, right. digesting food, waste yeah. management. Like my body yeah. does millions of things every single day. And I had no gratitude for that. Mm-hmm. If I, tra- if a friend was taking care of me when I was sick, 
24 hours a day and all I did was complain about how they looked, that person would stop taking care of me. Right. Right. But my body is just there, right? All the time. And so I started, I started to conceptualize sort of me and my body as a team mm-hmm. and then having really appreciating my body for what it did. And then I started to look at like beauty. Where did these ideas about beauty come from and how that was messed up? But really it started for me by every time I had a negative thought about my body, I replaced it with some kind of thought about gratitude. That's good. And that really helped to shift the way I felt about my body, which also helped me shift my perception of other people's bodies. Yeah, that does really help. Good. Awesome. So the last question I like to ask all my guests is what is the most fearless thing that you have done? publicly opted out of the culture of dieting. Awesome. Love it. That's such a good answer. (laughs) (laughs) So good. Well, thank you so much, Reagan. Where can people find more of you? Oh, they can always find me online at danceswithfat.org. Um, if they want to follow my, um, my uh, Ironman journey, I have a blog called iron fat, Com. Um, and then if they're looking for information about my speaking, that's um, sizedforsuccess.com. Um, and so, and you can, uh, my email is Reagan, R-A-G-E-N at danceswithfat.org. And you can always email me and I'm very happy to provide any sort of advice or anything that I can do to help. So you can always connect with me that way as well. Thank you so much for that. I will link to all of these in the show notes at summerinandin.com forward slash FRR dash five three. That's episode 53. Thank you again so much. It was such a, it was such a pleasure and I'm just, I'm so honored again. And it was just, it was amazing chatting with you. Um, you are such a beautiful person inside and out and I just really, really appreciate it. Thank you. All right back at you. Thank you so much, Summer. Rock on. Reagan is definitely someone you want to follow if you are not already following her and uh, getting access to her emails. So you can find links to that in the show notes for this episode, summerinandin.com forward slash 139. Thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you soon. Rock on. I'm Summer Inanin, and I want to thank you for listening today. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Summer Inanin. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this show. I would be so grateful. Until next time, rock on. Rock on.